0: This will be the fifth and final episode of our podcast series called, What's It All About? And in this series, it's been my hope to answer the question, what is the Bible all about? And very simply, the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the main character in every story of the Bible from the very beginning all the way to the end, and you see Jesus showing up in the Old Testament in foreshadowing statements, foreshadowing prophecy. You see Jesus showing up in events that point to him. You even see Jesus showing up to have conversations and reveal who God is to various people throughout the Old Testament, such as Moses, such as providing a sacrifice for Abraham, such as calling Isaiah into ministry as Isaiah saw him in the temple. And all of those accounts throughout the Old Testament are ultimately pointing to one specific event that is going to happen at some point in the future. And it was an event that all Jewish families were looking forward to. This family that was established by Abraham, the one through whom God promised would be a great nation. And so through that nation, from that nation, would come a Messiah, someone who would save people ultimately from their sins. Everyone knows that things aren't right. Everyone knows that there is a problem with evil. Everyone knows that we have sin, that we're just messed up and we need rescued from that state of being, that sinful state of being that just can't seem to get things right on our own. And this is true of every single person in the world. This is true of every single person throughout history. And so God's plan was that he would come and do that himself, that he would be the one to rescue us. Well, when God comes to the earth that he created, he comes as the man that we know as Jesus Christ. And so the question that we seek to answer in the conclusion of this podcast is why? Why did God do that? Why did Jesus have to die? You know, often when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ and God, the Father, whenever we think about him, often our thoughts may not be biblical. And what I mean by that is we don't always consider whether our thoughts about who Jesus is and why Jesus died are actually the way God revealed them for us in his word. And if there's one thing that I have learned over the years, and trust me, this is something that has probably come with age and with maturity. And I'm sure there is plenty of room for me to continue to mature in my thinking as well. But here's one thing that I know, and that is if we don't have right thinking, we normally won't have right behavior. And so let's focus in on having right thinking about this issue of Jesus coming to die. Why did Jesus have to die? You know, if I were talking to a group of people say, in a lecture hall, about this very question. And I asked the question, hey, you tell me, everyone, why did Jesus have to die? And I asked for various answers throughout the room. What are some of the responses that you think I might get? Well, he died for me. Yes, but who else? Well. He died for everyone. Yes, he died for everyone. But for who else? He died for the sinner. Yes, he died for the sinner. But who else? Well, uh... The Bible says he died for the elect, whatever that means. Yes, the Bible says he died for the elect. Who else? Well, he died for everyone. Everyone in the world. Yes. He died for everyone in the world. But for who else? And at this point, the audience might become a little frustrated, wondering who else could there possibly be that we haven't yet mentioned? And then maybe someone would say, Is the answer you're looking for, Chris, the Father? God? The Father? And I would say, yes, that's correct. You see, most people think that Jesus just died for us. Well, as much as he died for us, he also died for God the Father. And unless we realize that, then our concept of who God is and what God accomplished through his son and all that God had planned throughout the Old Testament and all of those prophecies and everything that those events and foreshadowings pointed toward are not going to make as much sense to us as they would until we truly understand what is at the heart the biggest problem that Jesus solved through his death many theologians say it like this they say god had a problem and yes that's true you see god created us god created human beings to have a relationship with us he wanted to have relationship with us and he said you should worship no other god but the lord for i am god and i am passionate about my relationship with you i will take care of you i will sustain you but then We, human beings, we turned from that. We did not obey God in that, and we worshiped other things. We worshiped ourselves. Sin came into the world, evil came into the world, and all of the problems came into the world. Well, here's the problem. God will approach us, human beings, with his love to save us. But you see, God is not only a God of love. He is also holy. The Bible tells us he's just. He's righteous. And all of those words suggest that everything he does is right and just. He is also a God of love. But a God who is right and just in his very nature means that he has to punish us for that behavior. And the punishment for that behavior is death. so then you might say, well, human beings have a problem. That is true. You see, God created within each one of us a desire to know him. And that is true of every single person in this world. And many people have not yet found the God who actually created them and found that relationship with him, but they have found other ways to fill that hole, which ultimately do not satisfy. But God created us with a desire to know him, to worship him, to be complete in him. And so we approach God for salvation and we know that we need him for that. But his very nature, because he is just, because God is righteous, because God is holy, God has to destroy us. He has to carry out punishment on us for denying him, for disobeying him for sinning, for turning from him. And so I guess you could say, yes, God has a problem. And also human beings, humanity have a problem. And the answer to that problem is so critical. Because the question is, well, how did God solve that problem? And that's what we're here to answer today. Over the years, I've had many conversations with people about God. And often, some of the same questions will come up. And one of the biggest questions that it seems like you're ever asked whenever you're talking about God and the nature of humanity and sin and evil and where did it all come from and how does it all exist together is this. Well, if God is so loving, how can he send anyone to hell? I mean, how can you send someone to hell? If you say that you're God and you created people and you want your people to have relationship with you, then how do you send them to hell? I don't want to serve a God like that. I don't want to believe in a God like that. But here's something that's interesting. Over all the years of ever having conversations with people about God and His nature, and about humanity and our nature, I'm not sure that I have ever heard anyone ask this question. Instead of saying, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? No one has ever asked this question. How can a holy, righteous God ever allow a sinful individual into his presence. You know what? That question is just as good of a question as the previous question, but I don't think I've ever heard that one. And you know why? Here's why. Most people in the world, including Christians, the way They think about god is me centered we are all me centered and a lot of theology that we learn in churches is centered around me around us around what is in it for me how does it affect me how does it apply to me and that is one of the biggest fundamental problems that we have in this world. Because in reality, all of our thinking should be the exact opposite. It should be theocentric, which is God-centered everything that we look at in God's word and everything that we consider in all of those other stories throughout the Old Testament, everything that we consider when you read the New Testament and Jesus coming and doing the work that he's doing, instead of looking at it in, what is he coming to do for me? What is he coming to do for us? We need to start answering it in terms of what is God accomplishing, period. I mean, we almost always look at the work that God has done on the cross as a man centered type of work, a me centered type of work. And many of us probably never look at it or consider it from a God centered point of view. So, back to the question why did Jesus have to die? You know, if you don't know why Jesus had to die and for whom he had to die, usually that means that you're gonna have a wrong concept about who God is. And you'll have a wrong concept about who you are and what Christ did on the cross and exactly what all it accomplished. To be able to understand why Jesus had to die, We need to answer the question, well, who is God? (laughs) Now, you might be thinking, wait a second. You said this is the fifth and final episode of this podcast, and... You just said, we have to answer the question, who is God? And we're already more than 10 minutes into this thing. How long is this episode going to be? Well, obviously, it's not going to be an exhaustive answer of the question, who is God? But let's answer the question by looking at what the Bible says about God and some of his attributes. You see, our minds cannot fully comprehend who God is. God is so great, and our minds are so limited And so God has to reveal himself to us and who he is, and he has done that in the Bible, in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. And he has revealed himself to humanity by showing us some of his attributes. And many of these attributes are things that you have probably heard people speak of when they speak about God. For example, people will say, God is love. That is true. That's an attribute of God. God is truth, God is holy, God is righteous, God is all-powerful, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, God is pure, God is omnipresent, he is everywhere all the time. So these are all attributes of who God is and they are all spoken of him throughout the scriptures. But see, here's the problem, and this is something that we've got to be careful of doing. And that is, a lot of people think that you take all of the different attributes of God, and you add all of these attributes together, and then the sum total of all of these attributes equals God. And that's not actually true. That's not how you are to think of God. You see, most people think an attribute is a part of who God is. And that's not the case. When we say God is love, we don't mean, well, a part of God is love, but another part of God is he has wrath. We might say God is holy. When we say that, we don't mean, well, part of God is holy, but another part of him seems like he's one of us. Or... God is truth. Well, part of him is truth, but in other parts of him, no, no, no. See, it doesn't work that way for God. That's not how you do it. You don't take all of the attributes, add them together, and then the sum total equals God. Here's a way to think about God and who God is. An attribute is a different glance of who God is in his basic nature. What do I mean by that? Well, when we say love, we don't mean that this is part of who God is, that God is love and that's part of who he is. But what we mean when we say God is love is that is what is true of God in his very nature. Therefore, you take all of those attributes that we spoke of just a second ago, and I only mentioned a few. But you take all of the attributes of God, and each one of those is something which is always true of God. So you can't just add all the attributes up and say, well, there you go, that equals God. Because the reality is, each one of those attributes equals who God is in his very nature. Well, you may have had to hit the pause button for a second to ponder some of these things. But let me just bring up another little frustrating question. In conversations with people about how powerful God is and how great God is and the attributes of God, someone might say well, is there anything too big that God can't do? And you might answer, well no, of course not. And then someone might ask you this question, well can he build a stone so big that he can't pick it up? Ah, Well, if I answer yes, well, then he can't pick it up. But if I answer no, then he can't make a stone that big. And then that person will look at you and say, ah, you see, God's supposed to be all powerful. There's something that God can't do. And you know what I say to that? Okay. But when you look at the attributes of God as a different glance of who God is in all of those things, I can say, perfectly fine. Well, yeah, sure. There are many things that God cannot do. What? What do you mean, Chris? How can you limit God? Well, think about this. There are things that God can't do. And someone might object right away and say, no, 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 that's not who God is. But here is the truth about God, according to the scriptures, according to what the Bible says about who God is. And the truth is, God cannot perform anything that is inconsistent with his basic nature. In other words, God cannot act unlovingly. Why? Because his attribute is, he is love. You see, God just can't set aside one of his attributes and then exercise the other attributes because he is all of those things at the same time. He can't exercise his holiness without exercising his love. He can't exercise his all-powerfulness without exercising his righteousness. And so God, you might say, in a way that he has revealed himself in his word is limited by his very nature. He cannot perform anything that would be inconsistent with his basic nature. Now, I've told you that to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? Well, in order to answer that question, we really should read the Bible and let the Bible tell us what the answer is. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter three, verses 21 through 26, it says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now notice something that it does not say. It does not say contrary to the law, that righteousness of God has been manifested contrary to what the law says. And when it says the law, it's speaking of the Old Testament and everything that God did in the Old Testament. There is no conflict between the law and the righteousness of God, or the grace of God. So let's keep reading. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So what we need is righteousness of God to have relationship with God. And God said that he created us and that he has a real passion for having a relationship with us. And so to have that relationship, we must have the righteousness of God himself. Well, we lost that righteousness. So how do we get that righteousness? Well, it says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Now this is the righteousness of God. So how does the righteousness of God come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. We gain the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Who does? All those who believe. And why is this needed? Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes you. The word all means everyone has sinned, and it means we all fall short of the glory of God. But let's keep reading. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's a beautiful word, justified. What does that word mean? That's a legal term. It relates to the law and it means this, to be justified means to be declared right in light of the law in any given situation, to be declared righteous. So when somebody is justified, they are looked upon and declared as righteous. And in this case, just as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Not made righteous, but declared righteous. And that's an important thing to consider because I am not righteous and I'm not made righteous through this process of believing and putting faith in Jesus. I am declared righteous even though I'm not. And then my goal after being declared righteous is to be made righteous. And that's a process that the Bible calls sanctification. So justification means to be declared righteous and sanctification means to be made righteous. But listen to what the rest of this verse says. It says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here is the predicament that God had. Here's the problem that God had. It said that Jesus died so that He, so that God would be just and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that gives us an idea of what the predicament of God was. How can God remain just and forgive? Sinful individuals like you and me, but also everyone in humanity and all of those who have come for years before you and me. Who are all far less righteous than God himself. If God is just, he can't just overlook all of the sin. He has to punish it. And so the question is, then how can God remain just and justify all of this evil and the answer to that question is why jesus had to die you see that scripture that we just read gave us the full answer for why Jesus had to die, and the answer to that question came in two words. There was a word redemption, and there was a word propitiation. And both of those words have two very different meanings, but they are both answers to the question as why did Jesus have to die? The word redemption is a commercial term. It was often used in the marketplace and specifically in the slave market. And it implies to buy out of the slave market. So when you redeem someone, you buy them out of slavery. Another way that this word redemption is used throughout the New Testament is not so much the actual act of buying a person out of slavery, but the price that you pay to get them out. And so redemption could be referring to the price, it could be referring to the act of buying someone out of slavery, but also the price that is paid to get them out of slavery. And a third way that this word redemption is used in the New Testament is that the price you pay to buy a slave out of the market of slavery is such a great price that that slave can never again be sold into being a slave. In other words, the price is so great that when God purchased us out of the slave market of sin, we will never, ever again need to be sold back into it the price was so great but what was that price it was christ's work on the cross and that work was so great a price that we will never again need to be sold back into sin that we will never again need to be a slave to sin Well, that's one of the words that's used in this section of scripture in romans to answer the question why did jesus die the second word that is used is the word propitiation now this word's a little harder to understand we don't use the word propitiate or propitiation very much in our english language in fact you may have never heard the word propitiation outside of a Christian circle of conversation. And there's probably good reason for that. To begin understanding the word propitiation, I wanna give you another word that is a synonym of it that I believe helps us to comprehend what it means. And that is the word satisfaction. In other words, when that scripture says that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins, you can also say that Jesus was a satisfaction for our sins. Well, what does that mean? Look at it this way. The work of Christ on the cross accomplished two things. It accomplished something for us as human beings, but it also accomplished something for God And what it accomplished for us as human beings is redemption. He purchased us from the slavery of sin. And what it accomplished for God was propitiation or satisfaction. One of the famous things that Jesus said on the cross just before he died is this line, it is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, his death on the cross paid the price to completely propitiate or satisfy the holy, just, righteous nature of God. And this is how God could exercise his love for us without setting aside his holiness or his justice. God could exercise his righteousness because it was satisfied in Jesus. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins and he satisfied the holy, just, righteous nature of God. And so you could say from that point forward, God was set free to deal with us in love. We could approach him to save us and he would do so in his love. His nature did not have to destroy us now. Why? Because Christ died for that. It was paid for. God solved this problem. He could approach us now with his love to save us because his very nature of being holy and just and righteous was completely satisfied in Christ's death on the cross. So why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to propitiate or to satisfy the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteous nature of God. And he also needed to die to pay the price to buy us out of the slavery of sin so that we could approach God in love to save us. So, friend, what does this mean for you? I hope to conclude this podcast with two stories, one to illustrate redemption and the other to illustrate propitiation. I remember reading a story that occurred many years ago along the banks of the Mississippi River. There was a little boy, probably about seven or eight years old, and he loved to play along the Mississippi River and he spent a long time making this little sailboat, and he prided himself in this sailboat that he had built for himself. To him, it was the most beautiful boat in the world. And after several days of testing it and sailing it in really calm water, he put it out into the water where the current and the wind could catch the sail. And the boat started moving out toward the center of the river, and he couldn't get to it. And he started crying and he started yelling for his boat. And his father said that he saw his son running down the banks of the Mississippi River, yelling to his boat, hoping that it would come to the shore. Well, at that point, the boat got caught up in the main current of the river and it was taken downstream. And the little boy was crushed because his boat was gone. About three months later, he was with his father about 35 miles downstream from where he originally put that boat in. His father was doing some business down in town, and as they walked down the main street of that little town on the coast, they passed a pawn shop. Now, in most places, you know how this works. You take something into a pawn shop owner, and he'll give you money for it. And if you don't purchase it back in so many days, they sell it to somebody else. Well, the boy and his father walked by this pawn shop and the little boy looked up in the window and to his amazement, he saw his sailboat. It was in the window and it was for sale. Well, he got so excited, he saw his boat. He found his boat. So he pulled away from his father and he ran right into the store and right up to the manager, right up to the person at the cash register. And he said, that's my boat. I want it. And the manager of the store said, well, wait a minute here, son. That's my boat. I bought it. And the boy said, well, no, no. I made that boat. It's my boat. And the man said, well, you're gonna have to buy it and the poor little boy was very sad because he didn't have any money well the father saw this predicament well his father saw this predicament and so his father gave him the money to buy the boat now here's what is significant about this story as they walked out the door The father heard his son talking to the boat. And this is what the little boy said. The little boy looked at his boat and he said, I made you once and I bought you once. That's redemption. God created you in his image. He made us once. And then we fell into sin and we wandered from God. And then he purchased us. How? He purchased us back with the death of his son. And every time God looks at you and me, he says, I made you once and I bought you once. And friend, that is redemption. That is one of the reasons that Jesus Christ came to die. Well, in order to be true to the entirety of Scripture, the whole teaching of Scripture, we must illustrate that second word for why Christ died on the cross. Propitiation or satisfaction. What does that look like? Well, many years ago, there was a story that was written in a newspaper in Los Angeles. Just north of LA, there's a stretch of highway that goes through a county where they're very strict on speeding. And everyone knows it. There's this little village that makes a lot of money with speed traps. Well, this young lady was driving through this village. She was probably 18, 19 years old, and she was going too fast. And of course, she was picked up for speeding. Well, in that segment of the road, when you're picked up for speeding, you are ticketed and you're taken right into court and court is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so she was taken immediately to court right after that citation. So she sat in court for a little while and when it was her turn, her name was called and she went forward and stood before the judge. Well, the judge read off the citation and then asked her guilty or not guilty. Well, she was caught red handed She couldn't deny the fact that she was speeding through there. And so she said, guilty. And the judge brought down the gavel and said, I find you guilty. Well, the penalty for a guilty verdict was either pay a $100 fine or spend a day in jail or so many hours in jail. And so this judge brought down the gavel and said, guilty. But then an amazing thing happened after that. Probably something that has never happened before, or maybe, maybe it's happened one or two times in other parts of the American court system. It's possible. But here's what happened. The judge stood up. He took off his judicial robe and he laid it over the back of his chair and he walked down around the front and he stood next to the young lady and he took out his wallet and he paid the fine. Well, the whole court was stunned. What was the explanation for this? How can you explain what was happening right here? Here was the explanation. The judge was her father. And so now here's the situation. The father loved his daughter probably more than anyone else in the world, but he was a really good judge. He was a just judge. And therefore he couldn't say, hey, I love you so much and I know you didn't mean to do this. You're forgiven this time. What would everybody in the courtroom yell out if the judge did that? no 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 that's not right judge she deserves justice we need justice in order for this whole system of courts to work so no matter how much he loved her because he was a just judge the fine had to be paid or she had to be put in jail for a day but he loved her so much that he was willing to set aside his judicial robe and come down and stand next to her as her father. And instead of seated before her as a judge, he took the penalty upon himself. And so that way no one could say, I want justice or there needs to be justice because according to the law, the requirements of the law were met in his payment. You might say that you and I have been brought before God, the righteous judge, and he brought down the gavel and asked, are you guilty or not guilty? Well, every one of us know that we have sin, we're guilty. And so he has to bring down the gavel and say, this is your fine, the wages of sin is death, but this God created you which means he's your father and he loves you. And so he stood up and he took off his royal robe and he set them across the back of his throne and he came down in the form of Jesus Christ who the Bible calls the Son of God and instead of standing before us as our judge he stood next to us as our Savior and he took the penalty upon himself he took the holy just righteous wrath of God upon himself and when Jesus said it is finished all of the requirements of the law and the nature of God were satisfied and from that point forward God is free to deal with us in love. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God is a holy, just, righteous, loving God. For whom did Jesus die? He died for you. He died for me. He died for everyone. And he died for God the Father. You see, God loves you so much that he did something about it. Now, my question for you, what will you do? What's It All About has been a production of Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. If you would like to connect with Oasis Church, you can do that on Facebook, on Twitter, or on Instagram. We're really easy to find. Reach out to us, send a message, let us know what you thought of this podcast. If you would like to attend our Sunday morning services, we are currently meeting at the Ohio Valley Christian Assembly Church Camp, just 13 minutes from Athens, and also about 10 minutes from Pomeroy, right in the middle between those two cities on Route 33. We're really easy to find. Just let us know and we would love to give you directions. We would love to meet you. If you enjoyed this series of podcast episodes, this was actually created from several different sermons and teachings from our Sunday morning services. We would love to have you come and be part of those. God bless you and thank you for listening.